0: our verse by verse study of the gospel of Luke. We are in the 18th chapter. We come today to the 31st verse tucked away in a series of memorable parables and personal encounters near the end of our Lord's earthly ministry. These four verses, there are four verses chock full of incredible truth. Now, most of us are familiar with a good portion of Luke chapter 18, probably the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Christ encounter with the rich young ruler, maybe even some of us know the story of the persistent widow, but please don't miss this little sidebar that Jesus has with his inner circle of disciples on their way to Jerusalem. He has been on his way to Jerusalem, by the way, since way back in chapter nine in the 51st verse, everything we have studied in between chapter nine and chapter 18 is really one cohesive act of Jesus steadfastly going to the cross. And for those of you who are keeping score at home, we studied Luke nine fifty one on June 3rd, 2018. Uh, so if you've forgotten, it is understandable. Uh, I'll remind us Luke nine fifty one. shortly after uh, Jesus uh, brought his inner circle up on the Mount of Transfiguration to see his glory revealed. Scripture says when the days were approaching for his ascension, that is to go up to Jerusalem to be crucified, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go. So why was the Lord so determined? Well, Isaiah wrote prophetically 800 years before that the Messiah would set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. That is, he would not be distracted. Now that sounds to me like a man on a mission. And Jesus was indeed more than a man on a mission. He was the God man on his mission. Christ says incredibly clearly in our text this morning, what is going to happen once he got to Jerusalem. So let's read that now. Luke 18. Beginning in verse 31, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, the thing that we see in this passage, right off the bat, is the centrality of Christ's redemptive mission. Start there. The centrality of Christ's redemptive mission. People in the world that accomplish great things and lead great movements almost universally have this trait in common. That is the ability to stay on message and to stay on mission. In fact, that is the title of our message today, Staying on Message and on Mission. That is, they keep the main thing the main thing. Now, Jesus did some amazing things in his earthly ministry. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. But none of those things, please understand, were his primary mission. So what then was his mission? Well, many over the last 2000 years have attempted to answer that questions. Lots of ink has been spilled. Lots of trees have been removed to make paper for their books. And some have said that Jesus came to proclaim victory over Satan, that Satan had uh, usurped what God had planned to do in the world. And Jesus came to proclaim his victory over Satan. Some say that he came to minister to the afflicted, the downtrodden and the poor. So some say that Jesus came to show the rest of us the right way to live. That is, he gave us a system of ethics and others say he just came to inspire us to do better. Well, all of those things have an element and a ring to truth, but none of them are his true mission. If We want to know the true mission of Jesus. All we have to do is uh, turn over one chapter in Luke to Luke 19 and verse 10. And there it is in bold relief said in an economy of words. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. If anyone ever asks you, why did Jesus come to earth? What was his mission? There it is. He came to seek and save that which was lost. While every other worthy and good thing that Jesus did and said was just that, good and worthy, they are subordinate to that central truth. Now, in declaring what was going to happen in Jerusalem, Jesus was just filling in the details of what has been his constant message since the day of his earthly ministry. And that in fact is our next point, the constant, the constancy of the mission's cost. Now let's just walk through these one at a time. Remember this is Jesus prophetically saying exactly what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He says, first I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Well, that's an important truth because there's a debate even today raging about who's to blame for the death of Jesus. And some say, well, it was the Jews, the the Pharisees. Um, They were upset that Jesus was stealing their thunder. Um, He embarrassed them publicly. Scripture says that they determined to put him to death. All of that is true. But it's not just the Pharisees that are culpable because they hand Jesus over to the Gentiles. That is the Romans who actually carried this out. So I I take from that, there is a universal guilt for all humanity to bear Jews and Gentiles alike. And when he was handed over to the Gentiles, the scripture says they would mock him. That is, he would be played the fool. The Roman soldiers uh, were bored many times sitting in these uh, obscure outposts like Jerusalem, far away from home and friends and family. And, and so they resorted many times to cruel games to pass the time. One of the things they would do with prisoners is they would have him play the fool. That is, they would uh, dress him up like a king and pretend to worship him. And that's exactly the reason they put that crown of thorns on Jesus' head, that they were mocking him. Here's the king of the Jews. And they put a scepter in his hand and, began to bow down to him and laughing. I'm sure all the time they mocked him. Not only did they mock him, they mistreated him. The old Testament said that they would pull out his beard. And, um, they of course stripped him naked and robbed him of dignity. And and then they did probably what most of us feel like is about the lowest thing you can do to another person emotionally. And as he, he was spit upon by the way, spit upon those that he had created those that he came to die for. This is the lowest of the low. And so not only did they give him the lowest of the low emotionally by spitting on him, then they scourged him. And we sometimes just pass over that word or substitute the word whipped him in in place. And we don't often stop to think about what it means to be scourged. The Romans rarely executed a person without first scourging them and served a number of purposes. One, it sped up their death. And two, it made sure their death was not painless. And so they would take what they called a cat of nine tails, which was strips of leather with a handle on one end, in which was embedded broken glass and sharp stones and anything that could rip flesh. And, and they would take turns one on one side and, and, and these leather straps would hook into the flesh and then it would be yanked and pulled. And it, it was a position of honor someone that had really practiced a lot to make it as painful and gruesome as possible. And I'll spare you all of those gruesome details, but just understand that many prisoners never made it to the cross because they lost so much blood that they died through the scourging. But Jesus survived the scourging of course. And that's the next prediction. He says then that he would die a literal death. Elsewhere in the scripture, we find that Jesus describes in detail what sort of death, the death on a cross. By the way, it was a literal death, not a metaphorical death that Jesus predicted. And then most importantly, Jesus predicted that on the third day, verse 33, he will rise again. Jesus predicted his victory over death and God's satisfaction through his atonement, through that resurrection. Now I suppose it would be enough if this passage in Luke 18 were the only place in the Bible that Jesus. Predicted these things would happen. But this point is the constancy of the mission's cost, meaning that throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus predicted these things. If his mission is to seek and save the lost, and then the cost of that mission is his passion, his suffering, and ultimately his death. There are at least three very clear places in the Synoptic Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus predicted with crystal clear precision, what would happen in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 16 finds its parallel in Mark eight and Luke nine says this, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then in Matthew 17, Mark 9 and Luke 9, we read this. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then in Matthew 20, Mark 10, in our parallel passage today, Luke 18, Matthew writes, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, mock him, scourge him and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. I'm laboring to make this point. There was not. This was not a one-time event that Jesus prophesied his death, burial and resurrection. It was rather the constant teaching of the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry. But amazingly, those who knew him best, the 12 still didn't get it. Look at verse 34, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Well, my immediate question is how could they not understand? Uh, the, these were mostly blue collar guys, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, but they were not dummies. It, it seems pretty straightforward. But when it happened, just as Jesus said it would, they seemed to be totally shocked and confused to a person. And so when we try to explain this phenomenon of, of their not understanding what Jesus plainly is saying, we usually end up with something like this. Well, this was not what they had expected of the Messiah. They had such a firm expectation and understanding of what the Messiah was that when Jesus turned out to be something different, they couldn't understand it. I think there's an element of truth to that. Uh, when, when Jesus said the first time it's recorded in the book of Matthew that he was going to be crucified and mistreated, Peter took him aside. And did you catch what G- Peter did? He rebuked Jesus. Don't do that. He rebuked Jesus. And basically he said, Lord, we're not going to let that happen. Don't you worry about it. Whatever happens, I've got your back. And Jesus gave Peter at that point the strongest rebuke any humans ever received from God or man. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus in another place said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight Now he had some in his group of disciples that were fighters. One of his disciples was Simon the Zealot. Zealots were known for being really terrorists. They despised the occupying Roman forces so much that they often carried little knives in their sleeves. Anytime they were in a crowded place and they thought they could get away with it, they would stab these Romans or these tax collectors. They thought the way to usher in the kingdom was through violence. He had some other guys that wanted to uh, run the show with him, James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to sit one on the right and one on the left. They thought when Jesus set up his earthly kingdom. So there certainly is an element of truth that they had in their mind, a clear picture of what the Messiah was and a sovereign servant was not he. But I think the real answer to the question, why can these guys not understand is in the text. It says the meaning was hidden from them and I take it by God. It wasn't just that they had unrealized expectations, but, but God was protecting them so that they couldn't fully comprehend what was being said. It's not that they didn't understand the meaning of the words that Jesus used it's that they didn't comprehend their significance and and their weight. Because if they had understood that what Jesus was saying, that he was literally going to be arrested, spit upon, scourged, beaten, and crucified, it's likely that they would have started a fight. In fact, we know that Peter did start a fight when they came to arrest Jesus. Remember, Jesus uh, had to rebuke Peter because he cut off the ear of the servant of Malchus, the high priest, Malchus, the high priest's servant, He said, Peter, put up your sword. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. So here's the point. Jesus didn't tell the specifics of what was going to happen in Jerusalem because he needed their help. He did not. Neither does he need any man's help. He tells them not to prevent these events from happening, but so that when they happen, they would remember that he said it was so. He wanted them to know that he was no man's victim. He wanted them to know that he willingly was laying down his life. Just as he said in John chapter 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He he was not trying to get them to prevent it or to subvert it through civil war. And that was the constant message of Christ throughout his earthly ministry. There's another point I want us to see from these verses, and that is the consistency of the mission's message. He had a consistent message. His mission, he kept on it tenaciously, tenaciously set his face to fulfill all the things that God wanted him to do. But every time he spoke, he spoke the same message. You see, not only did Jesus stay on mission, setting his face to Jerusalem, he, he, he told the same thing about redemptive history from the old Testament. Look at this verse. He says, behold, we are going to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. Now I want you to underline that word. that says all things that were written through the prophets. That's how you know a true prophet is that everything he says happens. Some of you might've seen the interview that I saw this week on a major news network of a man living now in America who claims to be a prophet of God. He claims to receive direct revelation on par with Jeremiah and Isaiah. And when he was pressed about his ability to prophesy the future, he said, well, I'm learning. It's exactly what he said. He said, but most of the things I predict come true. Well, that would be enough to get you stoned to death in the old Testament because the Bible says test the prophets, And if anything they say that God told them to say doesn't happen, They're lying, put them to death. Well, everything to the minutest detail that Jesus predicted would happen came true. He started all the way back in the book of Genesis. I take it in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve are called up short by the Lord for their sin. And he pronounces a curse on not only Adam and Eve, but on all the earth and upon the serpent and upon all of us. But he says this in Genesis 315 to the serpent that you will strike him on the heel, but he will crush your head. And that is the first place in the Bible, only three chapters in that the prediction that the Messiah would come, the seed of woman being Christ who would one day defeat Satan and death. And then Matt and the ladies read a moment ago, Isaiah chapter 53, that suffering servant passage, which predicted. Not only how he would live, that is with humility, not not only how he lived, but how he would die. By his stripes we would be healed and even how he would be buried. He would be laid, Isaiah said, in the tomb of a rich man. And that happened, of course, through Joseph of Arimathea. But then there's a little lesser known messianic prophecy and it should not be because it's also crystal clear just as... Isaiah 53, isn't it? Psalm 22, let's turn there. Psalm chapter 22 in in the Old Testament. If you have a pen in hand, you might just put a check mark besides every messianic prophecy that you can recall that was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus that we find here in Psalm 22. This is a Psalm of David. David writes these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Put a check mark. Those are the words of Jesus on the cross far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you that are enthroned above the praises of Israel and you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust When upon my mother's breast, upon you, I will cast, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Now hear this, there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Get the picture of Jesus on the cross. Those below him mocking, jeering, circling him. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. As a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. How many checks did you get? I got a lot. This is the story written hundreds of years before it happened of the Lord's crucifixion. What when when I'm trying to say is that Jesus stayed on message, the message that started in Genesis three and continued through all the line of the prophets, both major and minor, through the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the prophets, the poetry, and continued through the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the message. The message that his mission was to come and seek and save the lost. Now, what does that have to do with all of us? Well, those of us who live now, who've been redeemed, been born again, make up the church. All those people from all time that God has redeemed and atoned for their sins. Now we have been given not just a mission, but a great commission. And we must stay on that mission and on that message as a church. See, there's lots of good things that we can do and churches do in the name of Christ. It's not wrong to do mercy ministries, to clothe and feed the homeless. It's not wrong to be benevolent and kind to those in our community who are less fortunate, we would be less than Christian if we did not. It's not even wrong to to go to third world countries and build churches and hospital buildings. Those are all worthy and and good things. But hear me, those things are not our primary mission. Our primary mission is, is connected with Christ's primary mission to seek and save the lost. We can't save anyone of course, but we can declare that Jesus died for sinners. That is our message. And if we're not careful, in our haste to do other good and worthy things, that primary mission and that primary message will be drowned out. Our message is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's found on every page of scripture, both old and new Testament in every chapter and on every verse, all of the Bible is about Jesus. that's why when we gather together here at this church, First thing I like to say is open your Bible because this is where we find our message. And every week when we gather together, I'm reminding us that we don't have any other message that is significant. And if we lose this message, all will be lost. See, just like those original 12 disciples, Jesus, pointed out all of these prophecies that he fulfilled, not because he needed their help, because he wants to announce to us that he is indeed sovereign over all of human history. Our job is, is not to help Jesus, but to announce his kingdom has come. And I think if you really want to understand why Jesus hid these things from them originally, it was to reveal them when the time was right. It's in Luke chapter 24 let's, let's finish with this. Turn over to the gospel of Luke and the 24th chapter. And I don't want to give too much away because you've been so patient for three and a half years, we're going to get to Luke 24, Lord willing, about next Easter season, but you'll have forgotten what I said today by then. We'll say it again. Okay. Luke chapter 24, you know that Jesus has been crucified. He's been laid in the tomb. Um, he has been gloriously resurrected. He's gotten up from the grave and he has encountered these uh, two men on the way to Emmaus, he's opened their eyes. They've declared that it was Jesus that was with them. And, and then here in verse 36 of Luke 24, your Bible might have a little heading that says other appearances because Jesus appeared to the Bible says over 500 people after his resurrection. And they bore witness that that he truly was alive. And, And here's one of those times, beginning in verse 36. It says, while they were telling these things, that is, these men who had been with Jesus, he himself stood in their midst, that's the Lord Jesus, and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Well, what a condescending savior, by the way, he, He knew their hearts. They still were having trouble believing it was Jesus, though all of their senses said it's he. And so what does he do? He says, give me a piece of that fish. But you notice Luke doesn't say, just give me a piece of fish. He says, give me a piece of that broiled fish. Does that sound like mythology to you? That is a historian reporting historical narrative. Not only was it fish, it was broiled fish. And so he eats it in their presence to help them understand that that's how Jesus used to eat. It's really him. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of the broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. In other words, he just preached the same sermon he had preached them before his death and then he opened their eyes to see it. Now friends, in a very real sense, that is what we do today as a church. If we try to use anything other than the word of God, we fall woefully short he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. That's what we pray for every time we come together. Every time we have a private Bible study or a quiet time in the motion, we pray, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding that we could understand what you're doing, what you're accomplishing in the world. And so just like those 12 disciples, we have a message, as Jude says, was once for all delivered to the saints. We call it The gospel. The gospel being all of those truths of what Jesus said and did and accomplished here on earth. And, and we have the authoritative word of God. Did you know you have an advantage that those disciples that they didn't have? All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. But Remember what Jesus said to them in John chapter 14 after he says, I'm going away, but I'll come again in like manner. He says, but don't worry because I'm going to send to you a comforter. And what's he going to do that Holy Spirit? He's going to help you recall exactly all the things that I said to you. That's why we can be sure that the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accurate. Is because the Holy Spirit recalled to their memory, these writers, exactly what Jesus said. And even though Luke wasn't one of the 12 and John Mark, they were witnessed to by the people still alive. They were dependent, we believe, most especially on Peter, who had a close relationship with both of these men and the apostle Paul, who was taught personally by the risen Lord Jesus. You can trust the word of God, but there are people who who will say, well, the Bible contains God's word. You ever heard that? You know what they're saying? They're saying, if you read between the lines, some of it's God's word and some of it's not. It contains God's word. Friends, we need to boldly say that this church believes that the Bible is God's word. All of it. And and so note what Jesus said is he said all the scriptures, verse 44, the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, that's a good portion of the Old Testament. And then the rest of it, the Psalms. That is from cover to cover. Every book of the Bible declares the coming Christ. And now the church today is built, the Bible says, on Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the teachings of the apostles. And so what we do is we take the teachings of the apostles that were divinely inspired by the Holy spirit for them to remember everything that God told them to say, and then we teach it to one another. And we remind one another. And then when we're gone, those that we taught it to, will teach it to the next generation, to the next generation. As Paul told Timothy, faithful men teaching faithful men. And so when I say we must stay on message and on mission, I'm talking about the message that began before the foundation of the earth, that Jesus Christ would live, die, and rise again. Predicted by all the prophets, right down to the little village that he would be born in Bethlehem, declared by the psalmist that he would uh, be despised and rejected, declared by the prophet Isaiah that he would be laid in a rich man's tomb and verified through 500 eyewitnesses that the tomb is empty. That is our message. Go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey whatsoever commandments that I have given you. May the Lord help us as a church to stay on mission and on message. Let's ask his help in that. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I'm thank you that Jesus didn't just come to be an ethical example. We've seen those people come and go. Lord, I'm so thankful that Jesus wasn't just a good man. In fact, it, it seems ridiculous to deny the deity of Jesus and to call him a good man because good men don't claim to be God. The only people that claim to be God when they're not God are lunatics and villains and Jesus was neither. And so we were left to believe that what he said about himself and what the Old Testament scriptures predicted about him are true. That he is the eternal son of God who through him, as John declared, everything has been created that has been created, who is eternal, who was with the Father for all time, and is now seated at his right hand. And Father, I'm so grateful because in in those prophecies, we find out that Jesus is no man's victim. No man took his life from him, but he willingly laid it down. He, He emptied himself of the glories of heaven condescended to take on a human body born not into uh, royal robes but into a, a humble carpenter's house grew up among men and despised of men tempted in every way that we are and yet he stayed on mission he set his face like a flint to jerusalem knowing all the time what awaited him there And he submitted to his arrest. And he submitted to sham trial after sham trial, and he ultimately submitted to your will, which is his crucifixion. And Father, we don't have any other message than Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And so Father, thank you that, that we get to do some of the wonderful works that Jesus did, helping the poor and the oppressed, helping to bring about justice in the world because it's a world of injustice. But help us never to lose focus upon his mission, which is to seek and save the lost. Help our church and our denomination, Father, not to lose focus. That our great commission is to go into all the nations making disciples and teaching the world the things that Jesus did while he walked this planet. And Father, when you take those efforts and through your Holy Spirit, you bring about change and transformation and you open blind eyes and people are born again father we're going to be very clear and quick to say we didn't help you do it we just observed it and we just announced it help us to stay on task on mission and on message for jesus until he returns and we pray these things in his name amen